Hi, I'm Sean McCambridge, Managing Director of Stellar Recruitment. Thanks for joining me on this journey to uncover the secrets of inspirational leaders. The reason I put this together is to share the unique journeys of these successful individuals and really unpack how they've achieved success and hopefully inspire others to do similar things. So thanks for tuning in and listening, and I hope you enjoy the series. Well, Jonah, thanks for joining us here today as part of the Stellar Recruitment Podcast series. I guess we'll sort of just kick off with a bit of a snippet on my journey. I guess, you know, probably early on and, and most definitively from the age of 20, I identified that uh, often my mind or mindset wasn't working for me and I'd become really inquisitive and driven about how I could pivot that and, and get it to work for me. And I guess so my journey of discovery in that regard Started. So a lot of my questions today will be framed around how the mind works and how we uh, help them get our mind uh, working for us to get more out of ourselves. So I really appreciate you joining us here as part of the conversation. I guess I thought I'd start in a simplistic way. And uh, I've got young kids, you've got young kids, and, and sometimes my kids ask me what I do for work. So I thought a best way to explain uh, or give the listeners a bit of an intro is obviously you're working with high-performance athletes, executives, surgeons, how do you explain to your young children and people at dinner parties about what you actually do for your job? Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great question. And I, I try to keep it pretty simple. Yeah. The cliche I've come up with is I help people focus on the right thing at the right time. Yeah. So often we think that I can help you be more talented or more successful. And I say, look, I can't make you run faster. If you've got that inherent talent, I can help you bring that to life. So generally, it's around focusing on the right thing at the right time. I guess that's similar to, uh, we also did a, a podcast with Richie McCaw, and they spent a lot of time with forensic psychologists and that following the 2007 World Cup. And in simplistic fashion, they talked about the fact that dealing with the pressure is just doing the simple things when it matters. There's nothing more complicated than that. Catch, pass, tackle when it really matters. Correct. So, And maybe we can sort of talk a little bit more at a biological level, uh, at a fundamental level, you know, uh, level, what, when you're under stress, what's actually happening in your brain? Mm. <laughs> a simple question with layers of complexity. Um, I mean, at the most simple level, really, your brain's just trying to work out if something's a threat or not. So everyone's probably heard of the classic freeze, flight, fight. And that's what's happening. Now, what's the corollary of that? That means you are having a flood of neurochemicals, you know, the, the amygdala, the fear centre of the brain is being activated. Cognition, so cognition means what we think about, what we attend to, so what our eyes scan to and what, we, what memories we draw upon. They get very fear-orientated, so often very triggered by threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we need to make a decision on that. So we might get a whole bunch of physiological sensations which are just the brain's way of waking up the body. Mm-hmm. So it can either fight or run away from that threat. Mm-hmm. So you put that all together and normally you've got the whole myriad of, you know, butterflies and jelly legs and lots of thinking and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But if, at a most simple level, it's just assessing uh, whether this thing is something I need to uh, flee from, fight it or eat it or procreate with it, basically. Yeah. And maybe this is a, a good sort of segue into the question. And the previous talk that I attended with you was, was fantastic. And I believe you talked about changing the attachment to stress. And you sort of touched on a little bit in that answer there before, but seeing it as a signal to perform um, and exposure to stress 
could be a catalyst to grow and create a positive relationship with this versus being debilitating. How, how do you actually do that in your experience? Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Well, the first thing I always say is not many people got nervous this morning making toast. You know, we get nervous about things we care about. So typically if there's a bit of stress in your life, it normally means you're doing something that matters or something of importance is at stake. And that's okay. You know, that means you're living life. Um, and the biggest thing I do is normalize people. Normalize people's experience to stress. And I use a lot of metaphors. So for, <laughs> for the average weekend warrior who might go for a run or has is, is played some social sport on the weekend, I say, did you call triple zero when you felt some lactic acid? And normally they smirk and laugh and say, no, Jonah. I say, why not? And they say, well, it's just lactic acid. I say, well, what do you mean by that? They say, well, I've felt it before. It doesn't kill me. Um, it passes. Uh, it's not life-threatening. Um, and it probably means I'm working hard. I say, interesting. So you're really good at accepting something like lactic acid, even though it's painful and it's hard and it doesn't feel nice. I say, why can't we apply the same rules to anxiety? Have you felt it before? Yes. Does it show up every time you're doing something that matters? Or yes. Does it pass? Yes. Does it kill you? No. Does it mean you might be doing something of importance? Yes. The anxiety is just a physical response. I even take the word psychological response out. Just a physical response. Your brain releasing some, some neurochemicals in response to a trigger and see it for what it is. Often then we no longer fear it. So without getting too Dr. Phil, yeah. I talk about metacognitive worry. Metacognitive worry is just the thought of thought or the, the, the assessment or judgment of a thought. And most of my work is helping surgeons, actors, racing car drivers, doesn't matter, free themselves up from their fear of their fear. It's okay to be nervous. Stop worrying that you're nervous. It's the worry of the nerves that actually distracts you and leads to underperformance. How do you, how do you, you know, and, and maybe it's a, a harder question to answer, but... How do you nip that in, a, in the bud, so to speak, before it snowballs? Because I think my experience is uh, when you don't have the tools or the techniques, that, 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 that fear anxiety could snowball mm. and it becomes something you know significant. Mm. Whereas I, I, I guess maybe what you're alluding to before, if you can sort of get in there early and sort of um, label it for what it is and sort of mitigate it, then mm. it doesn't sort of turn into something that's debilitating. Yeah, you've, you've, you've nailed it there where you said the word label. We actually use a technique called labeling where it's... Firstly, understand that what's the likelihood you're going to feel some anxiety tomorrow as you go into open heart surgery or have to perform in front of the Sydney Opera House or you've got to pitch to the board about the merger or you've got to go and make your debut in your Nashes series, right? We all agree it's 100% likely there's going to be some really intense emotion around. Cool. So when it shows up, how about freaking out about it? How about we go, oh, g'day, about time you showed up and maybe even label that. One of the most fun things I do with, with athletes is I say, give your thoughts and fears and worries a name. Yeah. You know, something stupid, memorable, simple, right? You know, one of the best is my sh you know, little kid called it his shadow. You know, yeah. It just follows me around. Yeah. I say, yeah, cool. Yeah. You know, one of my Olympians wrote down his fears, anxieties and worries, folded it up, put it in a piece of, on a piece of paper and tucked it into his sock and went out and won his Olympic medal. And what he was saying to himself was, come on, you can come with me because I know you're going to be there, so I'm not fearing that you're going to be there. He took his fear out there willingly and it didn't hijack him. So it's sort of almost disarming the thought. Correct. The yeah. term we use is diffusion. Diffusion. Just let it be there. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the next question is an interesting one. And again, it come out of uh, an interesting notion you talked about. And uh, I'll try and get it right. You, you talked about uh, when dealing with pressure, 
don't worry so much about coping with pressure, but you, you talked about this notion of creating a bigger vessel to mm-hmm. tolerate more stress, more pressure, and grow your capacity to handle it. Yeah. Uh, can you sort of explain on, on maybe my poor explanation and, and how you actually achieve that? Yeah, sure. So for the listeners, it's the, the, the metaphor I always use is have a look at your coffee cup on your table right now and picture that cup as a metaphor for your stress. And as, as the water is getting fuller and fuller and fuller, we often start to worry, almost panic that it's about to overflow. And a very traditional psychological approach says we need to stop, relax, take time out, go on a holiday, go to a meditation retreat. Um, fire that staff member who's agitating you even though they're really skilled something right to reduce your stress level okay whereas the approach i take is says how about instead of trying to reduce the stress level how about we turn you into a, a, a much bigger vessel turn you into the jug of water instead of the cup of water so that whatever stress comes you can tolerate a lot more if you're going to be an Olympian, you're going to be a Formula One driver, you're going to be a UFC fighter, you're going to be a, a stock trader, you're going to, I don't care what it is, you've got to actually increase your capacity for shining and thriving with adversity, not trying to reduce and get rid of it. You know, Physiotherapy, interestingly, went through this about 15 years ago. When you used to have a sore muscle or sore tendon, they'd say, oh, rest that. You know, Take some anti-inflammes and, and don't run on it and... You know, reduce the the, the, the the soreness. And of course, you'd return to training and get sore again, and you'd just be on this long journey. Now, thankfully, they're really intelligent. They went, hang on, you're getting injured because that tendon isn't strong enough to handle the load you're putting through it. If you're going to be an elite athlete, we need to make you stronger. So we're going to keep you running with a bit of soreness in a controlled way to build your capacity for handling load. My job as a psychologist is to say, let's look at your job. Wow, by definition, that's a pretty stressful job you probably need to be really, really able or willing to open yourself up to really strong, tough emotions, both internally as well as externally by crowd and others and, you know, and shine. And with using uh, an executive as an example, a lot of pressures, internal, external, how do you help them build that capacity? Like, is there any sort of simplistic examples you can use to sort of about how you achieve that? Yeah, the, the term I use is what's called experiential avoidance. Typically, as humans, we've evolved not to like or certainly to respond to an internal discomfort. So, you know, you've got that colleague at work, you know you want to give them some feedback, but you're afraid they're going to burst into tears or they're going to get angry or they're going to storm out or they're going to think you're a jerk or they're going to give you a bad 360 report next time, whatever, right? Yeah. So it makes us feel uncomfortable, and so then we don't actually give that feedback, for mm-hmm. example. That's an example of being experientially avoidant. Mm-hmm. And we get short-term relief. We feel a bit better because we didn't have to face that, that tough situation, but we le- leads to long-term suffering because you're not leading the way you want to lead, for example. So mm-hmm. the work that I do is about finding all the areas in people's lives that matter and looking at the, the ways we have been avoiding and then give them that nudge towards counter-avoidance. So pushing into the discomfort. I call it comfort with discomfort. You've got to learn to feel sometimes worse in the service of the right thing. And in doing so, you become a bit more comfortable with that discomfort. Correct. And therefore, in the future, uh, better able to take on those examples because you've done it before. Correct. It wasn't that bad. Correct. And I guess the other thing that I personally experience is when you do avoid it, 
post that you have a sense of regret. Correct. Which is worse than often worse. the avoidance. Far worse. Yeah. It leads to long-term suffering because yeah, yeah. you realise you, you're self-critical, you feel crappy, you feel like, oh, you know, I'm not being the best version of myself. Yeah. Why didn't I do that? I look at other people who do it you know, more readily and I get envious and I think, why can I be like that? And then you get really self-deprecating and you're in that trap. Whereas if you learn, it's just a bit of short-term discomfort, but it's okay. you know. And what I often talk about is what allows us to do painful things or hard things you, you have to do it in the service of something meaningful. Otherwise, we won't do it. You know, get out and everyone knows to get out of bed in the morning and go for a run. Just a lot of people don't. Everyone knows not to smoke. Everyone knows to eat better. Like, we, we know all this. Why don't we? Um, but those that seem to be able to do that at a consistent level and, and seem to really thrive in life, they can normally connect to something of meaning. And that's where I really love the work around uh, understanding your own values. You know, and again, for, for, the, for the metaphor, if, if I asked all your listeners to take their shoes off right now and walk across a whole bunch of broken glass, just for the sake of it, let's do some motivational walking, guys. Let's walk across some broken glass. You'll get cut feet and it'll hurt and you'll need stitches and, and, and it'll suck. You know, I'm not really going to see many people lining up. But if I said at the end of it, I'll guarantee everyone you love will have a rich and meaningful life free from harm and suffering. And all your hopes, dreams and aspirations will come true as well. You know, I normally see people lining up. And what does that show? Well, it shows that people are crap at feeling pointless pain. But if we connect to something of meaning, we'll endure great hardship. So I, if I've got a leader, an executive, a CEO who really struggles having those crucial conversations, they, they get a bit stuck with their anxiety or their fear or whatever it is, it's not about just making them more confident or having more self-belief. That just doesn't work. It's about increasing their connection to the purpose of why. Why would I go and do that? Why would I have that conversation? Why would I performance manage that staff member? Why would I decide to float my business when it's terrifying and I might stuff it up? It's Is it in the service of something of meaning? Then if it is, I'm much more willing for that short-term discomfort to, to show up. Fantastic answer. What do, you, what do you mean when you say it's our interpretation or meaning we attach to a thought that creates cortisol? Well, what does that sort of mean? Yeah, right. So cortisol, the old stress hormone. Yeah. People think that thoughts, you know, we've got to really control our thoughts and watch our thoughts because thoughts create cortisol and cortisol is bad. And it's, and it's, it's not. It's, it's the attachment we have. So there's a lot of literature at the moment around positive psychology, mm-hmm. posit- the power of positive thinking, yeah. uh, you know, which therefore infers that the devil is negative thinking. <laughs> I don't actually believe this positive and negative thinking. I talk about thinking. It's really important to understand the difference. So explain that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. There's just thinking. Yeah. It, it's a rich tapestry. Mm. It'll make me feel stuff and stuff will be pleasant and tough and weird and scary and strange and bizarre and hopeful and aspirational and regret. You know, like it's, it, the, the whole tapestry is there. But if I simply view my brain as a thing that thinks versus that's positive, that's negative, I need to have more positive, less negative... You free yourself up because the very trap that you need to have positive thinking in order to shine will lead to a long-term life of suffering. The idea of positive-negative thinking and the belief that um, negative thinking creates stress. You know, cortisol is a stress hormone. And it's not the actual thoughts. It's our association or, or interpretation or meaning that we place on those thoughts. We have millions of thoughts a day. It's amazing how one or two really jump out and sort of hits between the eyes. 
because we've associated something of importance to that thought. It feels very real or there's a consequence if that comes true or whatever it is. So, for example, if, if my athletes know that they're going to have a lot of, uh, let's call them traditionally negative thoughts before a big performance, but they know that they show up every time they have a big performance and they're used to it and they don't give them much meaning, then those thoughts, whilst might make them feel a little bit anxious, aren't going to flood them full of cortisol because they're just thoughts. And the work I'll do with them is almost disarming them from being negative thoughts and making them just thoughts. So therefore removing the meaning. Correct. They're just thoughts. Yeah, it's not positive thoughts or negative thoughts, it's just thoughts. Yeah, yeah. and that, 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 that disarms. Whereas a thought, I think this lion might eat me, and there's some realness and meaning to it, yeah, that'll, that'll create some cortisol. There's some attachment to that thought. Whereas I might stuff up today in front of the world on the biggest stage at my Olympics, yeah, but I've had that thought for years and it's just a thought, thanks, brain. Yeah. Then that has a completely different interpretation. Yeah. And therefore it doesn't induce the chemical response of cortisol? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it's not thoughts that create cortisol. Yeah. It's the interpretation or meaning we place on those thoughts. And if we've got regular daily critical thoughts, hard thoughts, tough thoughts, thoughts around self-doubt, fraudulency thoughts, am I going to be good enough? Will I, like, and you can start to see them as so predictable, so normal, part of who you are, part of your makeup, seem to be an old friend that seemed to show up most mornings, and that's okay. All of a sudden, you're starting to shift your relationship to those thoughts, which in turn then almost disarms them. And removing the response that creates the cortisol allows you to operate better, be it a surgeon, be it an executive, be it a goal kicker. Sure. Because your brain's functioning sure. at, at a wider lens. Is that is that right? Yeah. It, it allows you to focus on what matters. Yeah. You're not sort of shutting down. Correct. And going to survival mode. Correct. Yeah. Correct. In conjunction with building your capacity that I can actually still perform really well with some relatively high levels of stress or cortisol. We often feel that we can't perform well when we're stressed, and what you find is the human brain is amazing. We can, we can break world records, do incredible surgeries, do amazing things whilst excessively stressed when we measure cortisol levels. So firstly, it's debunking the myth that high cortisol is this horrendous thing and that we can actually perform really well with it. And secondly, if we stop engaging in our beliefs around those thoughts being... Um, having the power to hijack us and they're just thoughts that actually in turn often drops the level of cortisol. Yeah, yeah. No, got it, got it, got it. Um, debunk maybe another myth or maybe maybe something that uh, a lot of people I've seen struggle with. So in the pursuit of our goals and our ambitions, obviously that can be all-consuming, uh, both in terms of our time and our energy and everything else. Talk to us about how better relationships with people and ones you can confide in actually helps disperse the load of stress and therefore cope with it because I think in the pursuit of greatness, often that means you maybe lose touch with people. But, you know, mm. how is it that that can be a positive thing? Yeah, it's a really great question. And it's somewhat complex, the answer, in that yeah. we're, we're very social beings, yeah. you know, so that social constructivist sort of theory shows that we're, we're very much, you know, designed to live in tribes and communities and, and share the burden. So we find that the simple task of, sharing some of the things in your life that are tough with those around your intimate circle, just that in itself has some buffering agent. We don't really know the complexities of what that is. Maybe it's around some sense of, yeah, shared social responsibility. But I, I call it this uh, self as context, a bit of a Dr. Phil mouthful and, you know, <laughs> as a psychologist. But what that means is how much of me is the problem 
or my career or my CV or my earnings or my physical appearance or my, you know, we get really caught up and, and bound by these things versus a more holistic view of ourselves, you know. Um, I, you know, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a son, I'm a learner, I'm a cook, I'm a wine wanker, I'm a this, I'm a that, you know, who happens to also be a psychologist, who happens to also, (laughs) you know, and that doesn't minimise my aspirations to be successful in business or what have you, but it's about maintaining a, 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 staying in the helicopter a bit and seeing yourself in totality. And sometimes when you share what's burdening you, the very byproduct of that is it gets you back in the, in the in the helicopter to see it as a bit of a, a problem that's solvable yeah mm. yeah yeah no it makes makes sense and, and the process of sharing uh does that often put things into context to, to an extent as well, well that's it, it, right. it could be you know manifesting uh at a, at a greater proportion than what is uh, you know maybe uh real um and maybe normalize some of your fears concerns issues absolutely Absolutely. And in sharing, you realise, well, yeah, yeah. this is relatively normal, maybe not so bad. Yeah, it helps normalise it, helps you remind yourself you're not in it alone. Mm. I think it's a very male attribute. Mm. I think a lot of, lot of, especially a lot of male executives, we have a pattern of sort of going inwards. I've got to solve this all myself. It's, it's strength to be able to, you know, be resilient. And the definition of resilient is never having weakness or falling over. Whereas I would say it's far more, it takes far greater strength to open up and talk about what's going on. And that's something you encourage uh, the people you coach to have a network Absolutely. to confide in, to lean on, to express your fears and aspirations. I, I, I smirk when I'm coaching an executive and they've got the, you know, the imposter syndrome. You know, someday somebody's going to find me out. Yeah, you know, sure. I've, I've been promoted way ahead of my game. <laughs> I don't think I've, everybody else seems far more skilled than me. And one day the board are going to cotton on. And I sit there and say, you know, I had the same conversation 45 minutes ago with another person and 45 minutes before that with another person. And like, we all have that, you know. So it's it's often realising if you can create some degree of connection and authenticity and you get rid of the, you know, the robes and you just be real and vulnerable, you, you, you really do get so much more out of each other because that's, that's the human connection, right? Yeah. No, fantastic answer. I just want to move now to high-performance states. So how have you helped players, executive surgeons, get into those high-performance states, if we can label it that, mm-hmm. when it really matters? Like, what is the process of, of getting into that you know, that mindset or, or, or state uh, to perform the things that really matter? Yeah, great question. Three main pillars I look to. Step one is embracing the situation and everything that it presents. So I call it opening up and fully being okay at feeling the anxiety, noticing the excitement, noticing the desire for success or the fear of failure, whatever's alive and real. So fully embracing the situation versus trying to run away from it and micromanage and control it and suppress it and deny it and distract yourself and get into OCDs and your rituals and and all that stuff. Just just be. Yep. Yep. Step two, be present. Be present. So it's opening up to the experience, step one. Step two, learning to be really mindful, rapidly mindful. Yep. What's in front of me right now? And jumping in there, how do you do that? You know, yeah. You're in the stadium, yep. you're, at the, you're at the board presentation, you're yep. anxious. Yep. How do you bomb? Yep, so bomb? step one is don't fight the anxiety. Yep. So stop trying to fight it, get rid of it, reduce it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be nervous because I'm doing something that matters yeah. and I'm feeling a bit scared that it might not go well because I'm human. Yep. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Anxiety, old mate. Yep. Let's go chatter. In I go. Step two, bring yourself into something really rapid. 
power of the breath. You can just breathe in for four seconds, out for eight seconds. In for four seconds, out for eight seconds, that's it done. I got Le Mans racing car drives that do it down the back straight at 100 or 340 k's an hour, 70 k, whatever it is. And they squirt the drink bottle in their helmet and they just take a tiny sip of cold water and just notice the cold water going down their throat into their stomach. But to do that, they have to be willing to let go of all their chatter and thoughts and you know, over-analysis and just bring all their awareness to that sensation. In the corporate sector, the bloody cup of coffee. You know, it's the one time in your life where you can't really talk. Yeah. So have a shut up, sip your coffee, and just notice the hot, cold, bitter, whatever it is, and just bring all your awareness to that sensation just for a moment, just to reset. It's not about calming down and running away from your anxiety, remember. So it's not about breaking a pattern. It's not. No. It's about shifting your prefrontal cortex, the focus part of your brain, to come into what you want to do, which is step three, do what matters. Take the action. Take the action. Yep. Not feel what matters. You know, I know Nike's not do what matters when you feel good. It's just do it. Yep. So it's going, all right, I've got to get better at just feeling whatever thoughts or feelings or sensations are showing up right now because I can't really win the battle of trying to get rid of them. And if I do, it just distracts me. So embrace it, reset into the present, and then absolutely commit to the behaviours that are required. And, and just building on that and maybe taking that to a more of a, a corporate context, you've worked with a lot of high-performance executives operating at their peak, and we touched on it a little bit before the, the conversation. What are these people doing to operate at their peak consistently, be that mindset, be that habits, be that recovery, to, to operate in a sustainable manner at a very high level? Yeah, great question values-based decision-making. Well, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. So we all have values, mm-hmm. every single human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, just most of us don't know what they are or haven't spent the time to operationalise them. But it's about connecting to who you are deeply, a bit of that Simon Sinek why, you know, that, that who are you and what matters. What do you want people at your eulogy to say about you? What, when, 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 when they give you, when they induct you into the Hall of Fame, what do you want them to say about you? At your 80th birthday, what do you want the people that love you and know you your best? What do you want them to say? You know, if you were to somehow hear people talking behind your back at a corporate function, how do you want to be described? Not about your CV, your status, your income, you as a person. You know, that's what matters, right? And once you can really identify your own personal values, can I then connect those to the organisation or where I work and see that the place that I work is an environment that allows me to express my own? That's when you've got a great alignment between the employee and the, and the organisation. Or you might have a misalignment and then it's time to move on. And that's great too. Nothing worse than working somewhere feeling like it's not working and wondering why. It could just be an incongruence in values. So for those that really thrive in terms of huge work hours, a lot of stress, you know, big ticket items on the table, that's fine. Those that seem to really thrive in that, normally I find are really clear in who they are and their daily actions, because we're all busy, there's only so much we can do in the, in the working week. It's what we do are in the service of values. So I call them sort of, you know, goals or values in action. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the definition of those values and then uh, getting into an environment or a job or, or, or an activity that's in line with that that creates the sustainability. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's 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 because you don't reach values. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. if I always they're say... They're everlasting, they're right, infinite. Right, yeah. right. It's a bit like going north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, sure, you, yeah. you just keep looping the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you it's know, a way of being. It's a way of being, right? Like yeah. so many people 
I always use the, the metaphor of you, know, you being loving or getting married. Yeah, you, plenty. Of, I've gone to plenty of weddings, unfortunately, where you look at it and you think, are they really enjoying this? Are they really celebrating their love for one another, or are they just ticking a box to look good and worry about the canapes? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so you never achieve loving. It's a daily commitment to your partner. Now, along the way, you might get married, you might buy the house, get the white picket fence, buy the dog, have the kids. That's cool. You can have those goals along the way. But there's also plenty of people who have a house with a dog and kids and they're pricks to their partner. Yeah. Right? So a lifelong pursuit of values and goals, which are in the service of the values, generally means you can, you can, the capacity for which you can achieve things is exponential. You can achieve so much more than you realize if every day they're in the pursuit of values. So you get that alignment, that's essentially where the magic can happen. Yeah, well, you don't get stressed. You, you, you enjoy it. You come home thriving. You're energised. You're energised by more it. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> because it nurtures who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. No, fantastic. We've had other people speak to us and they talk about, in sport, and I believe in business as well, and, and maybe you touched on it to an extent, I believe, at your last talk, but talk about not all moments are equal. So an athlete prepares, they taper, they perform, they recover, they go again. So how can you sort of, I guess, share how to manage workload and defining the importance of tasks or activities in the same way an athlete would in the corporate world uh, to ensure that we prepare, we perform, we recover to operate perhaps more sustainably and not get burnt out. So can you sort of share more about that? Yeah, do my best. <laughs> let, let, let's let's start with a slightly different lens. Yeah, I call let's call competition. You know the day whether that's yeah whether that's a, a pitch to to a to to some investors whether that's whatever or it's it's grand final day in a, in a game of AFL. And the metaphor or quote I use rather is competition is an ordinary performance on a special day. Got it. Ordinary performance on a special day. The performance that's required should just be a replication of what I've been building towards or I've been doing that got us to the grand final. But it's a special day. It matters. Yeah. I'm more nervous. I'm more excited. There's it. There's more dollars on the table right now, yeah. right? But isn't it amazing how we try to do a few of the following? We either try to say, all right, guys, today's the grand final. You've got to lift. You've got to go somewhere magical, right? Yeah. So we're trying to increase our performance to match the emotional increase. But imagine what you say. Just think for a moment to your listeners. What are you saying to a group of athletes that have finally made a grand final, for example, and you're saying, today you need to lift because it's grand final day. You're actually saying, what you've done so far isn't good enough, and I don't believe in you. Yeah. <laughs> Everything we've done to, to date isn't going to be we, sufficient. We haven't been there before. You correct. haven't been at this level. Correct, before, yeah. correct. That completely distracts them and makes you, you know, feeds the fire of anxiety and, and derails it. Whereas if you said, all right, guys, Let's go out there and do our thing. Yeah. By the way, you might get a little bit more, you know, critical of yourself if you make an error. You might get a bit more excited when it's cl close to winning. You might get more anxious at the start. That's normal. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty special day. None of us have been here before. Mm -hmm. But we can't invent anything magical today. Just go out there and do your thing. Mm -hmm. It's about that replication. Mm -hmm. And I find if I can help my clients replicate yeah. more and allow themselves to ride the roller coaster of the emotion, but what they meet or bring to the difference, different emotional states is behavioral consistency you get less burnout you get less peaks and troughs because you're just clear on what you need to bring to the table if you are then going into these peak events yeah there's going to be some time where you need recovery 
definitely, right, because of that emotional component. So we need some time to just sort of refresh the brain, the body, and that's where you want to engage in some active and passive type recovery things. And there's a whole raft of things we can do in that space, right, in terms of, you know, um, some of it is nurturing your values in those other domains, you know, health, fitness, family, fun, could be some active things like massage and ice bars and cold showers and eating well and all that. But for me, it's also just your relationship to your capacity to embrace that stress. Yeah, I find that those who are really good at feeling stressed and being okay with it actually need far, need far less time off for recovery mm. because they don't actually go in the pit in the first place. Yeah, no, fantastic. I've got a belief, which may or may not be uh, true, but I've got a belief that ambition is both a strength and a weakness, if not managed well. It pushes you to great things, but it can be debilitating. In your opinion, people who fit that definition, how do they achieve both success and happiness or enjoy the upside without maybe experiencing the downside? Yeah, awesome question (laughs) and a similar answer to what I've already given around values. Sure. So the answer to that is you take somebody who's a goal-setting machine Mm -hmm. and I say, listen, we can fill that trophy cabinet of life. We can keep climbing Mount Everest, running that marathon, winning that business, becoming a multi-multi-millionaire, whatever, and you're still going to wake up in the morning and feel empty like you're not good enough and you need to do more. Yeah, and I've got plenty of clients who meet that boat. I yeah. literally have gold medal winning Olympians who are empty, yeah. who, who, who thought that if they once they won that, their life would be yeah. you know better and they realised, ooh, they didn't quite fill that or tick that box. Whereas if you can help people connect to a journey or pursuit of their values and then achieve the goals, same goals, same lofty aspirational goals, but it's seen as a mechanism of of journeying through their values, you normally see that degree of thriving where you get both. Sure. Whereas once you've ticked a goal off, it's done. And that's, so what do most people do? They just set another goal and another goal and another goal. Whereas if I'm pursuing my domain of health and fitness, I can tick off a whole bunch of marathons and endurance runs and Hawaiian Ironmans and climb Everest and do these really cool things. And it's a never-ending journey, though, through my pursuit of health and fitness, for example. So is it focusing on fulfillment rather than success? Correct. And then the gold medal was just a milestone Correct. in that journey of fulfillment. Correct. Yeah. Rather than everything hanging off the million yeah. dollars, yeah. the gold medal, whatever. Once I get there, I will be successful. Yeah. If you're living to your values along the way and being fulfilled in that, yeah, it just so happens along the way. If yeah. you do that consistently, you get the gold medal, yeah. you get the million dollars, you get whatever. I've, I've I've worked with a client win a world championship and then retired, and they talked about the most rewarding thing was the courage to commit to their value of vulnerability. What was happening was in their sport they they weren't truly being willing to be vulnerable. And that was affecting how they were driving. So they were braking earlier into, into the apex, yep. accelerating harder out of the corner and two-tenths of a second too slow. Whereas if they are truly willing to be vulnerable and right push themselves right to the limit of what that car can do and everything, let's see what happens. So instead of focusing on technicalities of driving and telemetry and what have you, we tapped into their, their willingness to feel really scared and vulnerable. And when they won Le Mans and won the World Championship, they don't talk about how cool it was I won Le Mans in the World Championship, they say, how cool was it to go to that depth of feeling so vulnerable and so alive? 
And by the way, thanks for the trophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they love the trophy, trust yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the best of both worlds. So they worlds. committed to being vulnerable. And, and in doing so, yeah. they got the trophy. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's cool. That's cool. I want to move now to something that uh, I'd be interested to get your take on. You know, I, I've got a belief again that exercise, I, personally, exercise for me is as much about the sanity as it is the vanity. In your professional or scientific view, what is the importance of exercise as it relates to positive mental health and, and performance mm. uh, for those that aren't otherwise athletes? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, just go consult the, the, the medical journals. Mm-hmm. We know that moderate, even just moderate exercise is as, as effective as most SSRIs, you know, the most common sort of prescribed antidepressant medication. Whenever I'm working with anybody with a slight mood disturbance, I make a compulsory that if they are taking antidepressants or are getting treatment for it, that exercise is part of that intervention. Um, so it's an amazing thing, right? Firstly, and we're not meant to be sedentary. We're hunters and gatherers. Yeah. We're not meant to sit at a desk. We're not meant to sit down in cars. We're, we're meant to stand, walk, forage, climb. That's actually how our body feels alive. Mm-hmm. So you're really just connecting to how, you, I'd actually say, your idealised homeostatic state. Yeah. You're taking yourself back to what we should be doing. Furthermore... You know, you actually feel better for going for a run. You get a few lovely, you know, neurochemicals yeah. released, as we know, but it's more the two hours afterwards. You feel proud or satisfied or a sense of fulfilment or, you know, there's all these much more in, enduring consequences, far more than just getting a cardiovascular blowout. Sense of commitment, discipline. Correct, yeah. all of that. And because you're nurturing health and fitness, a very important domain in all of our lives. We all feel crappy when we're not you know feeling healthy healthy and fit now secondly when we do have a good base of cardiovascular fitness we're we're much better you know reaction times decision making sleep quality um, all those things that i'd say that most of my elite athletes as well as high performing executives need so if you want to be a high performing executive i always look at some of these particularly guys who are probably a little bit overweight sort of Busyness means I don't longer go for my run, and then we use it as an excuse not to keep up the good eating and you know long lunches and the steak and the wine. I get, I get it all there. I'm part of that. <laughs> I'm part of that world. But you know, it's a cop out. Firstly, but secondly, if you're saying, "Oh, I want to be the best CEO I can be," well, if you're not looking after your health and fitness, then you're taking the piss. Because if if you want to be a great decision maker and really, you know, be intelligent and and use your strategic acumen to navigate a complex problem or outthink your opponent or come up with the the new thing that you know we haven't even thought of yet or whatever, then you should be at least nurturing some uh, some general health and well-being. And don't make the excuse you don't have forty five minutes so you can't go for a run around the block. If you go for seven minutes around the block. Five minutes. I, I don't care. It, it, just get yourself going, yeah. and you'll get benefits. Yeah. yeah. So moral of the story is something's better than nothing. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. We create a we create a, a story that prevents us from doing it. We're too busy. Don't have the time. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. Just get going. Just throwing something on the back end of that, and it's not directly related, but it ties back to performance. Talk to us quickly about sleep debt. Yeah. And the performance inhibitor that occurs or the the downside of, of not achieving reasonable sleep. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's two sides to that. One is we used to think sleep was so critical to performance, so we, we thought, do we actually give you know athletes sleeping tablets in the Olympic Village? Do we do things because it's so critical? And what we actually found was you can go quite a while with poor sleep, mm-hmm. 
about about six days of, of you know interrupted sleep, and you won't even compromise remotely your ability to break a world record. Yep. So that often helps people who have poor sleep is Relax realizing yeah, yeah, that it's you not can the actually, end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a debunking this thing that you <laughs> yeah. need to sleep. Oh, you need okay. to sleep. Yeah. You can actually go for a fair period. However, if you've got chronic impoverished sleep, we know that has you know huge implications. Right. The first thing the CIA do is they sleep provide pretty poor. We can threaten violence, pain. We can, I mean, they do some horrible things. But the number one thing they do, because it's the most effective, is just keep people awake for three or four days. And normally they're going, okay, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you. You know? <laughs> so it's a pretty powerful thing. Um, so you do need to keep an eye on it. The worst thing you can do when you're trying to sleep is try to sleep. Of course. Uh, that'll just lie you in bed, then you're counting sheep and worrying that you're not sleeping. <laughs> so that's where mindfulness is really good. Yeah, mindfulness gets you into almost stage three sleep. Mm-hmm. So it, it'll give you some of that physiological recovery. And one of two things happens. You either fall asleep whilst doing the mindfulness and wake up in the morning, or you've at least given yourself um, a physiological recovery by doing it and you're developing better practices of unhooking from all those thoughts. Why don't we sleep? Normally because we're lying in bed trying to solve the future. Yeah. If you can solve the future, give me the lotto numbers. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. So it's learning to notice your brain, trying to solve the future, see it for what it is, and unhook and just come back to some mindful breathing or something. Uh, the next question is maybe a bit of a philosophical one, uh, and no doubt maybe grounded in in, uh, in a scientific response, perhaps. But in your opinion, what what are we capable of? I mean, how much of our mind's potential are we leveraging or, or utilizing? And I think you maybe said before or earlier we often sabotage our performance. So how much are we capable of if we can really unlock this this mind to its full potential? Yeah. Firstly, I, I, there's those old old cliches that we only use 10% of our brain or something. <laughs> yeah. It's just completely wrong. Right? <laughs> we use all of our brain. Yeah. Every single part of it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. Yeah. No, through evolution, we're just those parts of the brain would just die off. Yeah. Okay, every, every, every single neural pathway in our brain is used just at different times yep. for, different, for different reasons. Uh, in terms of capacity, fear can be a pretty limiting thing. So it's not so much about our capacity at a cognitive level, although, you know, I mean, this is a very deep conversation in terms of how we teach and learn and, you know, we, we struggle to learn, remember people's mobile phone numbers, yet we can remember detailed stories from when we were a kid, right? We learn through uh, narratives and associations. So, you know, we can learn far more. I don't know if you know Darren Brown. He's a bit of a, an illusionist, magician, mentalist type guy. And, you know, he can remember massive books and crazy amounts. And all he does is create, you know, associative learning. So a lot of the capacity of our brain ties into just knowing how we learn and breaking free a little bit from traditional uh, pedagogical frameworks of sitting in a classroom, going and doing an MBA, reading a book, you know, and actually, hence why podcasts are so popular, right? We prefer to listen than read. You tell me a story, I'll remember it, but I still can't remember the formula of the circumference of a circle. Yeah. Yet I did it 10,000 times in year year nine. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's about how we learn, and then the meaning we place on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the meaning we place on it. Yeah. So yeah. there's the so to so, so so that's the learning component, but then also how we deal and navigate fear. Mm. You sort of said in terms of yeah, sure, not reaching our potential. Yeah. So I mean, for me, it's not so much what the brain does; it's what we do. Yeah. So if I often say to clients, if you didn't worry what people thought of you. And everybody in the world accepted you no matter what you did, what would you be doing? 
and you get, you know, oh, well, I'd start up my own business. I would, you know, da-da-da, I'd quit this. I'd marry, I'd ask that woman to marry me. I da-da-da. It's like the, just all these yeah, answers yeah, come it. out. Yeah, yeah. You're like, and then you're like, so, and why don't you? Yeah. And generally the answer is fear. Yeah. You know, yeah. Fear, fear of rejection, fear of failure. Yeah. We don't know what I would do. Da, 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 da. And it's like, okay. Yeah. So it's amazing. And when I look at people who are really successful, and this is the interesting point, it's not that they feel less fear. People think they just yeah. they wake up and eat confidence for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. No, they feel just as much fear. Yeah. They just don't get defined by it. Yeah. They're more willing to let it be there, but act anyway. Yeah. yeah. So the difference between courage and courageously, brave and bravely. Yeah. You know, one's a feeling, one's an action. Yeah, sure. You know, firemen and firewomen they f- they feel fear. They shouldn't get awards for courage. They should get acting bravely awards. Mm-hmm. When you ask them, what went through your head when you kicked open that door? I was terrified, didn't want to die, and I thought of my kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What'd you do? I kicked open the door and went into the flames. Yeah. yeah. So they acted bravely even though they felt fear. Yes. For me, successful people in business, mm-hmm. in sport, still feel fear, but they act. They take the action. They take the action. Yeah. And I think uh, Mike Tyson's um, uh, original bo- uh, bottom coach, he said the hero and the coward feel the same fear. Beautiful. It's, what they, it's what they do with it. Or do Correct. thereafter that defines Correct. both. Yeah. yeah, beautifully said. Yep, perfect. You mentioned in the last talk again that I think one of the questions for the crowd was if you could only do two things or a handful of things or a limited uh, number of things to operate at your performance, and we were talking about recovery, uh, what would that be and why? So you, uh, my recollection was you said fish oil and mindfulness. Uh, so interesting answer. Why are these two things uh, so impactful? Why is this the case? <laughs> You're calling me out on one of my, on, on one of my little cliched answers. Um, all right, the long and the short of it. Um, well, let's start with the, with the fish oil. Yeah. Um, in our Western society, we just eat far less oily fish. And, we, and again, the science is in. Yeah. The, the Japanese live for 110 and they don't have Alzheimer's. Yeah. It's not complicated why. Yeah, yeah. They exercise, yeah, they, sure. eat sl- they eat slowly, and yeah, they yeah. eat fish. Yeah, sure. So there's something in that. Yeah. Oily fish, yeah. omega-3. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the evidence is there. It's not really... Uh, Anecdotes, it's it's just there. It's yep. real. Yeah. So nurture yep. your brain because yep. it, especially for acetylcholine and, and, and yeah, the neural pathways and everything in your brain, staying hydrated and eating oily fish seems to really help the brain function. Gotcha. Um so and we, we we got plenty of research on supplements for protein for the muscles yeah. and and you know amino acids yep. for, for electrolyte drinks for recovery. Yep. Well, how about nurturing the most important part of your body? Yeah, uh, that brain. So, it. so eat a good diet and eat yep. some eat some fish in it. Yep. Uh, and then that ties into mindfulness, right? Yep. And mindfulness isn't meditation. It's not yoga. It's not relaxation. Yeah, there's distinctions and important distinctions. Sure. It's slowing the brain down and developing the centers of focus. And when we look at um, even you know, 50, 60 years ago people were far more mindful because we didn't have the technology that we currently have. We don't, you know I mean? But we don't need to blame our current state. We need to embrace it. It is what it is. But we are daily sort of getting hijacked away from being good at just tuning into single tasking, yeah? The old don't multitask in single task. And again, they've done some amazing research in, in Oxford and other 
great universities looking at the neural correlates of mindfulness and they found within six weeks of of doing simple brief mindfulness you could see through fmris changes in neural pathways around these really critical areas of emotional regulation and things like improvement in iq sleep function strategic thinking creativity it's just it's just like this you know i say there's no such thing as panaceas in the world except for mindfulness and fish oil yeah <laughs> how do you you know you talk about mindfulness you talk about the race car driver yep. surfing the drink yeah and therefore achieving mindfulness how does one uh systematically achieve mindfulness in a world that there are so many stimulants if it's not a technology then it's our thoughts and everything else mm. how does one become mindful yeah so there's a few different ways you can you can attack mindfulness there, there's there's the formal so sitting and doing some formal mindfulness that might be guided and there's plenty of apps and you know things you can download and use technology to your advantage yeah the phone can be a, can be a really helpful tool as well as a hindrance so you can do a formal 25 30 minute mindfulness sitting session and that's great you can't overdose on that i just don't have the time in my day for that or i don't prioritize the time in my day for that um, so i do more rapid stuff so more of the informal um, that might be just learning to notice the breath might be starting my day in the shower sure. and instead of as we all do, planning our day, thinking of our diary, doing our to-do list, daydreaming in the shower, I might just for 30 seconds just notice all my sensations, smell the soap, hear the water going down the drain, feel the temperature difference, notice the water touching different parts of my body and just for 30 seconds just take myself through one sensation to the next, to the next and then when I get out of my shower, then I step into my day and I find that I'm much more than able to connect to my kids over breakfast and and my partner and you know be a bit more in the here and now versus already this wound up stressed angry reactionary and i haven't even started my day sort of thing you know so connecting at the start of your day music is awesome i'll tell people crank the music in your car but don't listen to the song listen to one instrument Sure. in that song try it it's bloody yeah. hard yeah 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 just hear the, the drums yeah yeah as if you're like a music engineer and you've switched all the other things down yeah. and then and during it your mind will wander that's okay just come back yeah and then the guitar will grab you but just come back yeah. or the lyrics will kick in and you'll get hijacked by that but just let go and come back to the drums and then once you've listened to them for a while then you choicefully switch to the guitar yeah. and yeah. stay for that for a while yeah. all of a sudden you've had four minutes of amazing mindfulness yeah people see my footy players on tv with the headphones on they say oh jonah i saw you guys pumping up before the game i smirk and go mm, yeah not pumping up yeah <laughs> they might have been listening to the same music that they used to try to pump up to yeah, yeah but now they're listening to it in a mindful way so they're absolutely clear that then then they connect to their thoughts around how do i want to play today they can just elicit what they need to do and off they go yep uh, so those simple examples are things that you can do to see the upside of mindfulness. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Great. Just before we sort of round out, I'd be interested to see if you've got any other sort of comments to make around any other habits, rituals. Uh, the last conversation, again, you talked about the daily reflection pro process. Yep. Yeah. Is there any other sort of uh, processes, rituals, habits that you advise or recommend in the spirit of continuous improvement or operating at your peak that mm. we haven't touched on already? That's a good question. I mean, um, to reiterate, definitely engaging in three forms of mindfulness a day. Mm -hmm. Only needs to be in between 30 seconds to three minutes. Mm -hmm. So it can be a mindful cup of tea, a mindful shower, breathing in for four seconds, out for eight seconds, three times over. 
If you did that throughout your day, I guarantee you'd be far more in the here and now and listen to your colleagues and make better decisions and connect better. Fasting is probably something that's got some interesting literature around it. In a, in a quick fashion, what are the benefits to the body and the mind of fasting? Yeah, sure. Uh, firstly, I wouldn't be recommending that to an athlete. So yeah, that, yeah, needs to sure. be, that needs to be conducted by a dietitian. Yeah. But some form of fasting seems to be, and, and again, you know, the evidence really seems to be coming now that putting yourself into a bit of a, a ketosis state where your body you know, eats away some of yeah. what it needs to has really lasting benefits for energy. So people, they're finding that people are getting more energy, not less. Sure. As well as losing weight, that's yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think most of us want to want to do that generally. But yeah, there seems to be some benefit in it. Or again, back to maybe how we used to be when we we're wandering the savanna. It seems to be a bit more of a uh, returning to what our physiology actually likes. Yep. Switching it on, switching it off, waking it up, stretching it. You know, um, there seems to be something there. I don't know quite yet. It's not yeah, my, yeah. Expert, yeah. my area of expertise, yep. but there's certainly. The papers I'm reading seem to be coming in more and more consistently that some form of daily or weekly sort of protocol around, mm-hmm. I mean, I just do a 16 and 8, right? I just do a, you know, they call it the 8 and 12. You finish yeah. eating at 8 o'clock at night and don't eat till 12 the next day. It's a 16-hour period where you don't eat. That works for me. Others do the like 5 and 2. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. That just seems to be an observation. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with psychology yeah. per se, but yeah. you ask a question around what seems to be a, a, something else, yeah. something around cold showers. Again, yeah. I, I don't know much about it other than those I know engaging in it. So it's more of an anecdotal one, yeah, this sure, one. I don't sure. have any evidence behind yeah, it. Yeah. But something about, and we know about eustress and distress, yeah. right? Distress means bad stress, whereas eustress is positive stress. Yeah. So we certainly know when you jump in the cold ocean, yeah. you feel so alive. Yeah. And there's something around that eustress response. Yeah. And I think the daily cold shower. So is that like an alertness? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a catalyst yeah. to yeah. sort of change your state from maybe sleep to yeah. I'm getting my day. Yeah. Yeah. As well as it's, but it's also something around the choicefulness of I'm choosing, right? If I throw someone in the cold water, they'll probably get out angry yeah. and they'll interpret it as distress. Yeah. Whereas if I jump in that ocean yeah. by choice, yeah. I'm choosing to expose myself to this. So there's something in that in that locus of control as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. And what about just quickly the daily reflection exercise? W- yeah. What does that enable you to do and what are the benefits? Well, it's it's like anything. I, I sort of, sometimes I find it surprising that people, especially in the corporate sector, have large workload, responsible for many people's employment and, and carry a burden of whatever. And in the in the sport domain, we review our athletes every single day. Every, certainly every week at a very you know high degree of minutia and yet I see in the corporate sector we do a six month performance review six month performance review like really you really want to wait that long to find out whether you're doing your job you know? yeah. so for me I encourage people just to have that, that daily reflection and make it simple right good better how yep. uh, stop start keep I don't care yeah, like, yeah. whatever works right what was good what could be better how am I going to do it and it just keeps you humming along right and it allows you to be more willing to to make those changes before you get tapped on the shoulder by by somebody to say you know you got spinach between your teeth, mm, mm, mm. you know. Uh, yeah. For me, uh, I'd rather look in the mirror and yeah. and and see it yeah. myself and clean my teeth. Absolutely. Now, well, look, I think you've given us some uh, some great takeaways today, and and uh, I congratulate you on choosing your career. Cool thing about what you do in your career is you're helping people reach their potential and maybe get rid of some of those factors that inhibit what they could be. And I think that must be incredibly fulfilling uh, and energizing for you. So the work you've done with 
athletes, executives, surgeons, and no doubt uh, many others, uh, perhaps children and whatnot. I think it's uh, really admirable, and uh, I've really enjoyed the chat today, uh, and I, I trust that the listeners will as well. So, Jonah, thanks for joining us, and, and keep doing your wonderful work, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to share some of those uh, aspects with our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.